This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present a conversation with Senator Marco Leas, who is running for lieutenant governor. Our conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, September 1st. Senator Marco Leas joins us now. He has served as state senator from the 21st Legislative District since 2014. He currently serves as the majority floor leader, and he's running for lieutenant governor. Senator Marco Leas, thank you so much for joining us again. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you once again. So for those people who may need a refresher, just give us a quick rundown on what the job of lieutenant governor is. Well, there's two main responsibilities. First is serving as our Senate president. Uh, And I'm proud to be the only senator in the race, and I've served as our majority floor leader, so I feel like I bring some good experiences there. Uh, The second set of responsibilities really relates to being number two in the executive branch. And I'll be honest, I think this office in the hands of the right person is exactly uh, the place where we can see the kind of bold transformational change we need in our state. When you look at my 12 years in the legislature, I've been making change. I'm excited to bring that Uh, energy, that record uh, to this task as well. Well, you know, you talk about bringing bold change. You are the sole strong progressive uh, in this race. After the August primary, you are now in a two-way race with a fellow Democrat. So just give us an idea. What are some of the differences uh, in the way that the two of you are running your campaigns? Well, that's a great question. It's it's tough to be in the top two with the Democrat because it's much easier to run against Republicans when uh, the disagreements are so clear. Uh, when it's another Democrat, it's a little tougher. Uh, our approach, though, has been to really run a people-powered campaign, and we saw this play out in the primary. Uh, we got outspent almost five to one. My opponent has a lot of friends on Wall Street, a lot of uh, deep-pocketed D.C. lobbyists who helped fund his campaign, but we are neck and neck with him uh, when voters had their say because of our strong grassroots energy, and it's thanks to indivisible uh, friends throughout the state, as well as the grassroots organizing we did. In the primary, we talked on the phone with over 10,000 voters, and we texted over 125,000 young voters to make sure that they got to the polls. We're going to keep that energy going. This is a people-powered movement. I'm excited to keep it going. I want to get your take on something because this is something that's popped up as a bit of a concern uh, for those of us on the Democratic side of things. Uh, Because the race is between two Democrats, some people were worried that uh, there could be a coordinated writing campaign for a GOP candidate splitting the vote. Are you concerned about that? Well, you know, before the write-in candidate jumped in, I had one millionaire opponent. Now I've got two millionaire opponents. So it is, uh, we do have that consistent challenge of an election system that's broken and uh, money determining the outcomes. Uh, What I can say, though, is when we've looked across history and looked at examples around the state, we can't find any example of a write-in candidate winning a partisan race like this. And in the one example in Alaska where we saw it happen, uh, the Republicans had to spend $30 a vote to win. So uh, I think uh, I'm not worried. Uh, I'm, I know that our grassroots campaign is going to get us there, but it does require people organizing. It does mean folks are going to have to help us take some phone bank shifts. It does mean that we're going to have to uh, chip in 5 and 10 and $50 to help us get across the line. Uh, we're going to do it. Uh, this is just, you know, one more bump in the road, one more millionaire in the way. Uh, we're going to keep fighting on. Well, that, my friend, is why we are here tonight uh, to make that case. So let's talk about some of your key issues. I know your number one issue is health care. You were a co-sponsor of Senate Bill 5526 that established basically Cascade Care, what we now know as Cascade Care. Uh, Governor Inslee signed it a year ago. How do you see next steps for getting universal coverage for all Washingtonians? 
Yeah, we really did two things at once. First, we passed Cascade Care to have a public option, but alongside that, we impaneled a group of folks to help us chart the blueprint to universal healthcare, and they're going to deliver their report to us by the end of the year. And so I've always felt like these two run in parallel, that we need to be expanding access all the time while we transition to a universal system, a single-payer system. And so Cascade Care is that middle step that gets access to more folks. It's exciting to see those plans show up on the exchange this fall to reduce costs. I'm hoping that we can talk about how to do premium supports to bring the costs of those plans even further down for folks. But the real vision is universal single payer. This is just an interim step to make sure we aren't leaving people hot behind while we transition to that vision. Now, your opponent, Democratic opponent, says he also supports universal health care. So what's the difference between your two positions? Well, I'm the only candidate in the race that explicitly supports a universal single payer system. I support the whole Washington initiative here at the state level, and I've publicly supported Medicare for all at the federal level. We need a universal single payer system where every single Washingtonian and candidly, every single American uh, has access to health care. I don't want to out my parents, but they are both turning 65 this year and signing them up for Medicare uh, is such a game changer. And I've just witnessed in my own family how wonderful that benefit is when people have access to it, how much reassurance it brings to people to know that their their coverage is going to be there no matter what. That's what every single American, every single Washingtonian uh, deserves. My opponent refuses and has had multiple opportunities to take a position on this, refuses uh, to endorse uh, universal single payer. I think that is a a big distinction and it's one that voters need to know about. We are going to deliver bold transformational change, not incremental change that leaves Americans and Washingtonians behind. I will just take off my objective hat uh, for a moment and just say yes, yes to everything you just said, uh, Medicare especially. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the pandemic right now and particularly the way that it may be impacting the way that we are viewing the issue of healthcare. According to recent figures, and these are a little out of date, but they still hold up. The Office of Financial Management uh, says that some 700,000 Washingtonians have been thrown off their healthcare coverage due to the pandemic. And this is mostly because their healthcare was tied to their employment. I'm wondering if you think the pandemic might be a game changer in this way, in terms of the way that we start to think about universal health care. It absolutely is. It really demonstrates how broken this model is. The idea that your health care is dependent on where you work, and then we see a global pandemic that none of us predicted, none of us could have prepared for, and it's, it's cutting people off not just from their source of income, but from their source of care. It's cruel. It's inhumane. I also want to just highlight a couple other issues. I had a video discussion with Georgia Davenport, who's running out in the 7th LD, and with uh, Dr. Tracy Rushing, who's running an ER doc running in the 15th LD down in the Columbia River Gorge. And they pointed out that the pandemic has also really highlighted the urban-rural divide in healthcare. And right now, as communities are trying to respond to COVID-19, we see it in stark relief that the, the lack of healthcare opportunity, the lack of healthcare access in the rural areas really puts those populations more at risk. The other thing that this has highlighted is the need to have uh, preventive care for every single American, every single Washingtonian. Uh, my family that lives in Finland they have universal health care there. They have a single-payer system. They are managing their chronic conditions, the comorbidities that make people more likely uh, to have complications from COVID-19, and their fatality rates are lower. So when we provide universal care so that everybody has 
treatment for heart disease and diabetes and these underlying conditions that complicate COVID-19, then it means we're more resilient. And we know uh, for better or worse that there are going to be other pandemics in our future. This is just uh, the way that the world is working. We're so interconnected. We've got to make ourselves as resilient as possible. And we have to make sure we're not just resilient in the cities, that our rural communities have the same access. And when you've got a county that only has one healthcare provider and one insurance company uh, that won't contract with doctors, that won't let new providers come into the community, that's cutting off access. A universal single payer solves that. We'll have providers in every community. We'll have access everywhere. There won't be this division of where you live and where you don't live. I talked, Dr. Rushing said when she moved to her town, they were living in Portland, they moved out to the rural area. Her neighbors said the first thing she needed to do was buy life flight insurance. That is insurance for helicopters to transport you to a hospital when you need care. That's garbage. We should not live in a state where folks have to buy helicopter insurance. Every single person in our state should have health care. That will solve this crisis. With the short time that we have remaining, I want to get a, your take on a couple more things here. Uh, I know that a lot of people are hopeful that with an expanded Democratic majority, something can be done to address our upside down tax structure in 2021. It's going to be a tall order. We are looking at an $8.8 billion budget deficit. Uh, but you have a detailed approach. So what do you think is going to be possible in 2021? Well, it's a multi-step process, but what we've got to do is begin to tax those at the very top. We've seen in this economy before COVID-19 that all the gains went to the very top. The millionaires, the billionaires, the big corporations, they're the ones that have been reaping the benefits, and they're paying very low rates of taxes. Your working family in Washington pays as much as 17 cents on the dollar to state and local taxes. Bill Gates is paying a penny or two. We've got to turn that right side up. So that means in the immediate term, some sort of high earner payroll tax, high earner income tax to make sure that those wealthiest few are contributing their fair share. It also means enacting a capital gains tax. We know uh, that the right wing and the Republicans will challenge that in court the moment uh, that we put it into law. So we need to have steps in place, including that payroll tax, to help us uh, survive while we wait for the lawsuits uh, to, to sort themselves out. We also have to look at our existing tax code and look at things like the estate tax, where the Trump administration and that horrible tax bill they passed cut the rates of the estate tax. I say, let's raise our thresholds and raise our rates and scoop that revenue back up. If the Trump administration doesn't want wealthy estates paying, that doesn't mean that we should be leaving that money on the table. We should be investing that in services here. Those are the first few steps I would take. We also need to really have a conversation in the long term around an income tax to provide uh, that stability and support to our tax code. That's a longer term conversation. It probably will require amending the Constitution because of some Supreme Court rulings we've had recently, but we've got to start that journey now. And that's why I'm excited. Representative Noel Frame, one of my colleagues in the House, has a group that's working statewide with input from Washingtonians all over the state around crafting a vision for what a balanced tax code would look like. We need to do that work now and be ready to implement it. Well, you're two of the younger members uh, in the legislature, and so you represent the future. You're going to have to be the ones to ultimately get it done. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the climate. We got a couple audience questions about this. Sam and Lori in particular want to know what your views are on climate change. I know you support the Green New Deal. I will ask how your views contrast with those of your opponent. You know, uh, well, first of all, I think we all need to acknowledge that climate change poses an existential threat uh, to human civilization on this planet. It is uh, COVID-19 has taught us that we will ignore these 
uh, giant threats. They become uh, really devastating. Climate change is waiting right behind COVID-19 to have same the same kind of effects on communities all over the world. We've got to take action on this. The biggest difference, uh, candidly, Stefan, is I'm the only candidate in this race that has taken the no fossil fuel money pledge. From the day I announced my campaign, we said we are not going to take uh, lobbyist, executive, PAC, uh, corporate money from fossil fuel interests, and we've kept to that. Uh, my opponent refuses to do that, candidly, uh, and I think that that's a dividing line. You know, you got to put your proverbial money where your mouth is and show through your values how you're going to lead. Uh, I think at the state, you look at my record. I helped close our state's last coal-fired power plant, um, and that didn't make me friends in that millionaire-billionaire community. I also led the effort to invest in Sound Transit Three, the state's largest expansion of mass transit in history. Those are the kinds of transformational changes we're going to need uh, to get through this crisis. As majority floor leader, I brought the 100% clean energy plan to the floor for a vote, helped get it to the governor's desk. So we've got to keep taking steps. The next step we've got to take is an economy-wide price on carbon, whether that's a cap and invest or a carbon tax. However that mechanism works, we need to create that economic incentive. And we have to pass a low carbon fuel standard, a clean fuel standard, so that we're reducing the carbon intensity of our uh, vehicle fleets as we continue moving forward. You know, I, I will just say, as you mentioned, you're running to be president of the Senate, and listeners know that we are working very hard to elect more progressives to the Senate. So having a progressive president of the Senate really will make a difference in all the areas that you're talking about in terms of the budget, climate, health care, and on and on. Before I let you go, I want to mention, uh, or have you talk about, rather, the historic nature of your run. If you were elected, you would be Washington's first openly gay statewide executive and the first gay lieutenant governor in all 50 states. Can you just talk about the impact of that? Yeah, you know, I think um, this election cycle is about breaking down barriers. It's why I'm so excited to be running on the most diverse ticket of legislators that have been running. It's why I'm so excited to be running alongside folks like Gail Tarleton and others. We've got to break down barriers and show that our progressive movement includes everybody. We've got to elect people like Twana Nobles. We don't have a single black senator in the Senate right now. We've got to be showing every community in Washington that they have a place at the table and they have a, a role in, in crafting these solutions. Our LGBT community is vibrant, it's diverse, it's located all over Washington state. And I'm so excited to step up onto this statewide platform and show that our community will, is not only ready to lead, but ready to be part of the solutions and creating the bold transformation we need. And in the primary, we got just hundreds of messages from LGBT voters around the state. They got that voters pamphlet, they read it, they saw that we were gonna make history, uh, and we got all sorts of emails and love and support. This is about visibility, it's about representation, it's about giving young people who are growing up in our society that sense that they have a place at the table. It's about making sure that folks who've lived in this state and haven't felt welcome for decades know that they are now welcome, that our state is a place that accepts everybody. That's the transformational part of this race. I'm so excited to be helping lead the charge to bring the change we need. Well, we are hoping to be right uh, right at your side, helping you uh, create that change. I know there are a lot of motivated people listening right now, so let's talk to them. What sort of help do you need? Well, I will be honest. Last time I came on your uh, on your show, um, the next day my fundraising assistant said, "Hey, what did you do last night?" Because we raised about a thousand dollars right <laughs> in the evening. What were you doing? And so I'm hoping that uh, your listeners tonight will help us, uh, you know, maybe double that goal 
uh, and raise some money. We also are going to need, uh, candidly, a lot of help to keep reaching out to Washingtonians. We're going to have a strong team of organizers that are making phone calls, sending texts to voters. So if there's folks on the line that can help us uh, in a volunteer capacity, if there's folks that can give a dollar, five dollars, five hundred dollars, whatever it is, uh, that's what it's going to take to win. I have two millionaire opponents and I don't have that kind of cash. I need folks to have my back to be helping us deliver this message. And we know if we can raise turnout by progressive voters, we will elect Mike Pellicciotti and Chris Reichdahl and Gail Tarleton and me, as well as folks up and down the ticket. And we will bring the change that our state needs. What's your website before you go? MarcoForWa.com, M-A-R-K-O-F-O-R-W-A.com. Senator Marco Lewis, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to Senator Marco Leas. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fye-Sears. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.